0: In today's message, I want to offer a primer on the gospel of Jesus Christ and an ex- explanation of the pictures of the gospel of Jesus Christ as found in the Word of God. I have titled today's message very simply, A Gospel Primer and Pictures. We use the word primer in English when we are dealing with an introduction on a subject. And today's message aims to do just that, namely to offer a helpful hopefully helpful, introductory understanding of the gospel pictures that we find inside of the New Testament. Now, by the phrase gospel pictures, when I say that, I have in mind something specifically known as the ordinances of the church. Specifically, I have in mind two things, namely communion and baptism. These two things, communion and baptism, are unique pictures of the gospel. We take communion every Sunday. In front of me, we have uh, the Lord's table. We have... Tables to the side uh, over here on both of the sides as well, just to accommodate the flow of the serving of communion. Every Sunday we serve communion. Every Sunday we hear the gospel heralded to us. And uh, every once in a while, though I long to see it, it would be great to have this every Sunday as well, we have baptisms, uh, which is like communion in that both of them are pictures of the gospel. And so communion is a regular rhythm of the Lord's Day. And baptism is a regular rhythm of the church as, as the Lord leads us. We come to the waters of baptism, we witness it, and something special happens when people are baptized in Christ's church. Next Sunday we have baptisms coming, so in preparation of that, it seemed fitting to stand before Christ's church today and to talk about what exactly the picture of baptism means. Often communion is left out, so we're going to tackle both of these pictures of communion and baptism, So that as a congregation, as we gather next week, we come uh, ready and prepared to see the great picture of the gospel that we have in baptism. And as well, we come today to the table ready to receive the great picture we have of the gospel in the Lord's table. Um, This message I'm going to bring to you from the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you would open your Bibles and find your way to the book of 1 Corinthians. I call 1 Corinthians a book, but technically... uh, Uh, What kind of a book is it? It is what's known as an epistle, that is to say, a letter. The book is a letter. It is written by the historic Apostle Paul to a group of believers, a church, a congregation, in the ancient city of Corinth. Corinth was uh, sort of the red-light district of the day, Sin City, if you will. Like Vegas, like L.A., it is a bustling and large city that is of great influence in its culture, and as well, it was of great influence for the spread of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, the early church, Jesus himself, targeted urban centers like Corinth and through these urban centers and planting churches in them the gospel was spreading out into the ancient world. Circa 55-56 the Apostle writes this. So that's a little bit of a background to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to pick up in the 15th chapter, so if you would turn there. And let us begin with the first point on our outline today, the primer. I want to begin today's primer of the gospel and gospel pictures. But uh, as, a, as a point to begin with, it, it seems fitting to just talk about the word gospel itself. It's a word in church that gets thrown around a lot. Gospel, gospel, gospel. And we don't want to lose people by using words if they don't know what they mean. That's a very important thing to us at Delray Church. We don't want to go through the motions. We want people to understand uh, what we believe, why we believe it, what words mean, what's the significance of things. So before jumping into the gospel, let me say something first about the word gospel. The word gospel is, de- is derived from an Anglo-Saxon term, God's spell, literally meaning good story. It is a rendering of the Latin evangelium and the Greek word euangelion, which literally means good news or good telling. The prefix on euangelion, ooh, is a word that means good. Um, you know, ooh, that means good in Greek. So next time you're like, oh, would you like, uh, whatever, cheesy eggs, ooh, sorry, I don't like cheesy eggs. I'm sure people here do, but, uh, I'm weird that way. Ooh, sushi, ooh, but, uh, in Greek, if you did that, they're going to think, oh, you know, like, that's good. He wants the sushi. Not me, put it in some oil and fry it up. Don't be, I feel like sushi is lazy. Fry that up for me. Uh, you know, hook it up, bake it, do something. Don't be lazy. You're not going to cook it for me? Come on, cook it. Ooh means gross in our culture, but to the Greeks it meant good. To say ooh means good. Angelos means uh, a message or a messenger. So then etymologically, this compound, euangelion, means a good message, a good messenger. Draw your eyes at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Now... I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which also you stand. Now let's stop there for just a second. This is significant because Paul is writing to a group of people who believe the gospel. They believe the God spell. They believe the good story of the historic Jesus. They believe this. This is significant because often in contemporary church culture, we think the gospel... Is sort of introductory. The gospel is sort of the ABCs and the one, two, threes. And then you move on and you get into, you know, more important sort of issues or whatever. The gospel isn't the ABCs and the one, two, threes. The gospel is the whole enchilada. It's not the front door to the building that you enter, it's the entire building. We ought not to ever grow tired of the gospel. Well, let's go blue in the face and die with the gospel on our lips. We see this in Paul's letters, Romans, uh, Very important letter in the New Testament, often people's favorite when it comes to the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm eager to get up there to see you guys so that I can preach the gospel to you. He says this in the beginning of Romans after he said that the reputation of this church in Rome had spread around the ancient world. Like, I hear so many good things coming out of your church, your gospel people, you're spreading the gospel, and I can't wait to come up there, see you guys, and bring the gospel to you. The Corinthians, they've received the gospel. But Paul never grows tired of it. He says, I want to make known to you, brethren, the gospel that I preached to you. I've already preached it to you, and I'm going to preach it to you all over again. Now, if I were reading in the original, you would see that the word used here in the text, the gospel which I preached to you, is that word I was just sharing with you, Angelion. Ooh, good. Angelos, message. This word was one that would grab the attention of the people. Angelion. In our day, the word gospel, you hear it and you think like, oh, churchy stuff, religious stuff. But in those days, when you heard the word euangelion, you actually thought politics. You thought politics. You see, euangelion was a word that was used in the Roman Empire when the Caesars or the kings wanted to make announcements. So if you heard euangelion, you're like, oh, the king, the Caesar, has a message for the people. The kings would send heralds out into the streets. They would yell hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, get everyone's attention by yelling, or they would blow a trumpet, get everyone's attention. In a, in a center of the town where the people were gathered, they'd yell, they'd blow a trumpet, a herald would, and then the herald would make a formal announcement from the government to the people, and that was called euangelion. Now with this in mind, Paul the Apostle is a herald, not of an earthly king, but of a heavenly one. Indeed, Christ is earthly king. His his kingdom will come to the earth. He taught his disciples to pray for his kingdom to come. He is earthly and also heavenly. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul, as an apostle of this king, is a herald. He's blowing the trumpet. Hear ye, hear ye. He raises his voice. I have Uangelion. Again, in that context, that would have been understood as something that was political. And hence, it is no wonder that in the Roman government, Paul himself, writing this letter, was regularly threatened by the Roman government. Its thugs, its, its, its soldiers, its military, and the rest was regularly threatened, thrown in jail, beaten, punked, all the rest. They tried to silence him. Because that word, euangelion, just hearing that word, you think political uh, uh, you know, uprising or something. What are these people doing announcing an euangelion? Archaeologists have unearthed an inscription in Preen. Preen is western Turkey from the reign of Caesar Augustus who reigned from 27 BC to AD 14. So Caesar Augustus then ruled the empire of Rome when Jesus was born into Jesus' teens. It, it, it is what archaeologists have uncovered called the Preen calendar inscription because it was found in Preen. That's very creative. And it was written in Greek. This inscription that we have on earth from Caesar Augustus uses the word euangelion in it. And I give this to you by way of background so that you can understand here in verse 1 of chapter 15 when Paul starts talking euangelion talk what the original readers would have been thinking of. Because we as moderns, we hear gospel and we start thinking like gospel music, Kurt Franklin, or you know, uh, that guy on the corner you know, telling me I, you know, turn or burn. You know, God, that, that, that's what gospel is. Y- yes, there's, Yes, in our culture, yes, but for them, they heard gospel and they thought, they thought political propaganda. Okay, this word, euangelion, it occurs in a section of this preen calendar inscription. I'm going to show you a picture of the preen calendar inscription and I'll read the quote so that you can see it. In this section of the inscription that I'm going to be quoting from, it is quoting from another source, namely a pagan high priest... ...named Apollinus of Azania, ...and he is speaking of the Caesar... ...this pagan priest. Look at this. And he says, since Providence... ...has ordained all things... ...and is deeply interested in our lives... ...the Romans... ...and is set in most perfect order... ...by giving us Augustus... ...the Caesar, the king... ...sending him as a... ...savior? Both for us and for our descendants that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations. He was handsome, you know, so so they're doting over him. He's a savior, he's handsome, blah, blah, blah. Surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. No one's going to do better than him. And since the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the... Euangelion, for the world that came by reason of him. Notice that Caesar is hailed as a god. He's hailed as savior. He's said to bring the euangelion, the good news. He is further said to be one who will bring peace, Pax Romana, and end and war. He is the good news who has come into the world, the preen inscription tells the people of Rome. And from this vantage point, we can see the political propaganda that is related to this word, euangelion. Even the religious propaganda, because for them there was no separation of church and state, their king is said to be a savior and a god. You know, this is just one example, there are other examples that I could show you from the time of Christ where this word euangelion is used, of Roman Caesars and kings and propaganda for the empire. I just wanted you to see how the word was used at the time, because again, In our contemporary usage, when we don't have context in mind, we hear the word gospel and we start thinking of other things. It was used for kings. It was used for news that is coming from the kings to to the plebeians, to the regular folk. The pagans saw the kings as as Apollonius uh, heralds him. They saw him as a divine figure who was a savior a savior that would rescue them not only spiritually, but also politically and militarily from oppression and from other nations. Evangelion was a claim of victory. It is a claim to have providence on your side with world-shaping and history-making claims. In our culture today, when we hear the word gospel, again, we think of whatever gospel music or other things, we often uh, also think of individual salvation when we hear gospel. We think of one person telling another one person about Jesus and then if that one person is open after hearing the other person talk about Jesus they are invited to say a prayer to invite Jesus into their heart. Never mind that the New Testament never tells anyone to invite Jesus into their heart, whatever that means and reduces Jesus to. Instead, let me say what the Scriptures say about the Gospel and it's much more robust than this individualistic reduction. It's much of a bigger thing about Jesus as the real king of kings, as Jesus as Lord over Rome, as Jesus as the Messiah over this Roman-controlled Israel, and even further, as as the Lord over the entire earth, who, yes, is saving individual sinners, not by sinners inviting him into their hearts, but actually by God the Holy Spirit entering into their hearts ...providentially regenerating their dead hearts... ...and bringing repentance and faith in Jesus as a gift... ...Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, who vicariously dies for their sins... ...victoriously rises up from the grave... ...ascends to heaven where he is leading his church... ...for a time until he returns... ...the King of kings Lord of lords... ...who brings his kingdom to the earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1... ...Paul reminds the Corinthians... ...this is the gospel I preach to you... The Lord over Rome, the Lord over the earth, the King of kings who has suffered for you, who has paved the way, who's paid for your sins, who is coming back, who is a subversive slap in the face of the pagan powers of the day. He is the true Savior. He is the true God. He is the true One who holds providence in His hands. Look at verse 2. By which you are saved, if you hold fast that which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I delivered, verse 3, to you as a first of importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Paul speaks of the Scriptures. What, what, what is Paul's Bible? Paul's Bible is the Hebrew Bible. How does the Hebrew Bible begin? Well, the Hebrew Bible begins with the book of Bereshit, the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis begins with God the Creator and God's creation and the creation rebelling against Him. The Hebrew Bible begins with the maker and the mess, as you have on your outline. And this is really where the God spell, the good story, the euangelion begins. It begins with the maker. It begins with his providential and sovereign care of creation. It begins with his love. It begins with his unrequited love as humanity rejects him and sins against him. There's another word sin that we toss around like gospel. What do we mean by the word sin? As our catechism explains... Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world He created, rebelling against Him by living without reference to Him, not being or doing what He requires in His law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. The good news, the euangelion of the gospel, begins then with bad news. It begins with the bad news of the mess that we have made with the creation the Maker has given us. On the heels of making a mess out of things, in the very opening of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God actually comes to humanity and lavishes mercy and grace upon them. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the mess has been made with the Maker, the Maker promises to humanity, Genesis 3.15, that he is going to send one through the seed of the woman who will remedy the mess that we have made. Scholars refer to Genesis 3.15 as the proto-uangelion. Proto first, Uangelion, good news. You see, the Bible opens with bad news and then good news. Good news of a good God who creates. Bad news of the mess that we have made in the face of our maker. Good news, Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3, that he's going to send one who's going to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. And then you follow the storyline of the Bible, and it brings you all the way up to the seed of promise, the historical Jesus of Nazareth. We move from the maker and the mess to the man and the mission. Paul is preaching this man who has come to clean this mess. Look at verse 3, Christ died for our sins. Sin is the mess, Christ has come to clean up this mess. Look at what verse 4 says, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. The gospel message is focused on the man Jesus. Mind you, he is more than a man of history, he is God of eternity. I'm describing and proclaiming to you the euangelion of a triune God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. It is the Father who sends the Son, and the Son, fully God, He's one with the Father and the Spirit, who becomes a man. He takes on a second nature. Fully God, fully man in one person. As a man, He pays the debt that humanity owes for the mess that we have made. As God, in humanity, as God, He has the prerogative to forgive, and He does exactly that. And as God, He can raise Himself up from the grave and conquer the, the, the penalty of sin, which is death. The gospel is a message of this man, Jesus. This man who is God in the flesh, God the Son in the flesh. The gospel is not just a message about this man, but the gospel is this man. It is him. This God, whose Father, Son, and Spirit in salvation, the Spirit joins us to this man. It's this what we call union with Christ. And we become one with him, we're joined with him. The gospel is him. I emphasize this because often when people talk about the gospel, they make it sound like it's a message about getting to heaven. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, no. Well, let me tell you about a way to get out of hell. And the gospel gets reduced to fire insurance. The gospel is not fire insurance. The gospel is Christ. The the risk of selling the gospel as fire insurance is this. We have people pursuing Jesus, not for Jesus, but for what Jesus gives them. I like to call this gold digger religion. I don't like to call it that, but I just find that's a descriptive way, right? What's a gold digger? A gold digger is someone who's like, Oh, you're ugly, don't really like you. Wait, is that your car? Uh, you know, hey, let's go for a ride, you know. I don't want you, but I like your car. I don't want you, Jesus, but I sure would like a ticket to heaven. Well, see, that reduces the gospel to something that is not. To be sure... When you get the guy, you get the car, right? To be sure, when you get Christ, you get heaven and all sorts of other things, but don't get the cart before the horse. The gospel is not a message ultimately about getting to heaven. It's a message about getting God. It's a message about God saving people for himself and sending his people as his heralds to bring the Evangelion. This is the pattern, This is exactly what Jesus modeled. When Jesus began his ministry, look up here at Mark chapter 1, we read that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the euangelion of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the euangelion. The kingdom of God was at hand in Christ. How? Because he was the king. Right? If I walk in a room and I'm like, California in the house, Inglewood in the house, you don't think like, All of California is like embodied in me or something like this. It is, I'm a representative of the place. He represents the kingdom because he is the king. He offers to the people the kingdom, which they reject because they've rejected the king. And Jesus passed this message on to his followers who keep it going. So, beginning of the gospel accounts, like Mark 1, you see him proclaiming the evangelion. At the end of the gospel accounts, you see exactly the same. Jesus said in Matthew 24, look up here at this, the euangelion of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. The end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples before ascending into heaven to go into the world. Go to the ends of the earth, go to all people. The message was to spread. Indeed, its message was spreading. Look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 where we left off. Look at verse 5. He appeared to Kephas, this is the Aramaic name for Peter. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James. Then he appeared to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to one untimely born. He appeared to me also. Jesus spread the message. He spread the euangelion. He spread the message to his men, and then he called those men to go into the world and to carry that message and keep spreading it out as heralds. Hear ye, hear ye, I have news from the king. Blow the trumpet. Yell at the top of your, of your lungs and proclaim that the king is come and he's coming again. Proclaim the good news of the king and his kingdom that will come. This message is to be preached. In fact, look here at verse 1 and verse 2. Paul uses the word preached. If you have your own Bible, you could underline where he says preached in verse 1 and preached in verse 2. I want to show you something very interesting about this word preached in the original language. I'm going to say the word and see if you can catch it. I've been talking a lot about the euangelion, right? The good news, the God spell, right? Now listen to this word preached in the original language. Euangelizo. Euangelizo is the word that he uses for preached. I'll put it up here in case you want to jot it down for your notes. Did you hear that? Euangelion, euangelizo. Uangelion is a noun, the gospel, the man Jesus, the message of the man Jesus. That uh, noun, uangelion, Uangelitzo is a verb. So the verb, actually, if I were translating this in my own English version, I wouldn't translate it as preached, because when we hear preached, we, we, we think of certain things. You might think of what I'm doing right now. Oh, there's a pastor up there, and he's preaching. You know, that's, that's preaching, and, and that's for the pastors to do. No, 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 this preaching is for the people of God to do, this Uangalizo, I would literally render this as gospelizing. To gospelize, to convey the gospel, Uangalizo. It's not preaching what pastors do on Sunday mornings. Uangalizo is to convey the gospel to people. This gospel, this uh, 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 message about the maker and the mess and the man, this mission that flows from this gospel is given to the people of God to go and uangelizzo this thing. This leads to the next point, the message and the meeting. It is worth noting here that in 1 Corinthians 15, though we are reading the Apostle Paul's pen, the verses that we have been reading here in 1 Corinthians is actually Paul quoting another source. Paul's referring to an ancient hymn or a creed here. So understand that in Paul's day it was an oral culture. They handed down information by memorizing massive amounts of material. When someone did this, they would use technical words to let you know that I'm quoting. So in the Greek, they don't have quote marks, but they use technical phraseology to let you know, hey, I'm quoting from a source. They would say something like, delivered over, or they would use the word received. Now look back at the verses that we read in 1 Corinthians 15. We see Paul using this kind of language. These verses here, from 3 to 8, is something that is delivered over and received. He's quoting a creed, a hymn about Jesus. It is one of the earliest creeds in the New Testament. It is recognized by virtually all critical scholars across a very wide theological spectrum. The language is different from the way Paul writes. It appears to have been translated into Greek from the Aramaic original because we see Semitic phrases in it and, for example, as I noted, the Aramaic use of Peter's name, Kephas. Anyway, this creed is dated by scholars to have happened within five years of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's why this is significant. ...because we know in the ancient world that myths take over a generation to develop. When you you make up a myth, you have to wait for the eyewitnesses to be gone. We saw here in the text already, in verse 6, he makes reference to eyewitnesses still being alive. And here he is quoting a source that happens within five years... ...of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So to the critics who say, Jesus never claimed to be God... Uh, ...you know, the, the apostles made that stuff up later... The Gospel accounts, oh, you you, you got to date those 40 years plus after the time of Jesus. These Christians made this stuff up. Now, never mind the fact that we know from the psychology of deceit, people don't tell lies when they're not getting any profit from it. You lie to get something. They got nothing. They die as martyrs for this. Paul will die as a martyr. The followers of Jesus die as martyrs. They're not making this up. Furthermore, there isn't time for a myth to develop. Paul is quoting a source that's within five years of the time of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus happened. They were not making this up. Look at verse 14 of this chapter. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul is, again, writing at a time that eyewitnesses were alive. We can corroborate this. Go talk to Johnny down in Jericho. You know, he'll tell you we saw this. They're bringing the message to people who saw this. Again, because the gospel is not the ABCs and the 1, 23s we keep bringing the gospel to people who saw it, to people who believe it. And above all, we want to bring it to people who have never heard and never seen. And so Paul is unpacking the gospel, hoping that the people who saw it are there to corroborate it, but also to equip the saints for bringing this gospel into the world. Paul is quoting a source that gives data points about this. And so now on your outline, I want to move through very quickly 10 points ...to make sure that we understand some basics about the gospel. Again, this is a primer about the gospel and what the gospel pictures. So before we get into the gospel pictures, it's important that we really nail down the gospel. Because if you are to understand what it's picturing, you need to understand what it is. Now, I've, I've detailed all of this to you on your outline. And for you note-takers who like more space, I do apologize. But it's sort of taken up the space on the outline there. But I wanted you to have this and keep this so you, you can rehearse this. And... You know, if if you find yourself trying to share the faith and you get stuck on points, here's just a little resource that you can cut and paste and toss inside of your Bible. So let's let's move through these quickly. Point number one. Truth about reality is knowable. And it is true that there really is one God who eternally exists as three co-equal and distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who love one another and dwell in perfect union. I begin with truth about reality is knowable, and that it's true that there really is one God. Uh, in particular, because we live in a culture where people will say things like, that's your truth. This is my truth. You, know, you believe Jesus is God or this Trinity thing or whatever, and I don't. You know, That's your truth. This is my truth. And, uh, and it's what we call relativism. It's a product of postmodernism. And it's really something that we need to tackle out of the gate, lest as you're sharing the gospel people think, well, he's just talking about his truth. No, no, no. When we're talking Evangelion, we're talking about everyone's truth. This, is, this isn't my favorite ice cream is pralines and cream. That's a subjective opinion that, that you might have. This is two plus two is four. It's an objective truth claim that there really is one God and that we can know him. People who say you can't claim to know God, you know, how can you claim to know God? How can you claim to know something like this? They are actually contradicting themselves because they are making a claim to know about God, namely that you can't know about God. So when people say, you can't say that, you can't know that, they say, well, then how do you know that I can't know, right? How do we get started here? Truth about reality is knowable. There really is this one God who exists. Second, this God is loving, joyful, powerful. He made humanity to enjoy Him in a loving relationship and to display His glorious power in creation. Now, of course, as already covered, we made a mess out of those things. But thirdly, God is both just and righteous, so he punishes sin, that which defies him and his righteous standard as the just judge over creation. See how this begins with the beginning. It begins with what was covered this morning already the maker and the mess. You got 1 Corinthians 15 in front of you. Draw your eyes, please, at verse 21. What is Paul talking about here in verse 21 and 22? For since by man came death, and by man came resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. He's going back to the beginning. He's going back to Adam. He's going back to the maker. He's going back to the mess. Our parents, Adam and Eve, they started a rebellion that enlisted the human race in a war against God. That said, we cannot blame them, for we too sin, which brings us to the next point, point number four. We have all sinned. In fact, we are fallen. So we're in trouble because God is just and hence there's a just penalty for sin, death and everlasting conscious condemnation in the afterlife. No amount of goodness, religion, spirituality or works can save us because the just law of God is righteous and fair therein condemning us for sin. The maker gave us life. We rebelled against the maker. He takes life back. That just, that, that's intuitive. That, that just makes sense. If I give you $20 and you're like you spit on my face or whatever, give me that 20 back. You know, it's like What are you you doing? I gave you life. You spit on me. Life is going to be taken back. Thankfully, he's merciful and we have the Evangelion, which is his plan to rescue us from the mess. Next point five, God the Father loved the world that he gave the Son, not ceasing to be God who irreversibly became a human, historical Jesus, a figure promised and prophesied to Israel in history as documented in the Hebrew Bible, to graciously reach out to a fallen world, train disciples, fulfill prophecy, die for his own and save us. Next, this Jesus satisfied justice by perfectly obeying the law of God, shedding His innocent blood, and dying in our place for sin as a substitute, settling the penalty for those He would save by grace through faith. Seventh, those who by faith receive Christ have been saved from the penalty they deserved, and they've received the Spirit, freeing them from the power of sin and drawing them into a life of love, faith, repentance... Though our human bodies, number eight, may die, our souls last beyond the grave in one of two realms, with Christ in rest and in His coming creation, or, apart from the risen Christ, an everlasting punishment as a just judgment for rebelling against an eternal God. We've sinned against a God who is eternal. The consequences of that means the punishment will be in perpetuity. The punishment, again, fits the crime because the object that we've sinned against is one who lives on and on forever, so too the consequence of our rebellion. Next, one day, Christ will return to raise dead bodies. He, he's going to return to raise dead bodies, rejoining them to their souls, and He will fulfill all of His good promises made to God's one redeemed people through Israel and the church, as well as fulfill His sobering justice on those who have rejected the triune God, offering total and complete justice to the unpardoned who have willfully rejected Him. Now, these are primer, this is primer, this is introductory, this is gospel, this is gospel basics to give us a robust understanding of this euangelion. But the euangelion isn't just a bunch of propositions about God, the euangelion is a personal invitation, so these nine points would would, would be impotent, these nine points would fall short if we don't have point number ten, namely, here's the personal gospel invitation, trust Jesus. Come to Him in prayer, confess your sin, repent, and proclaim your allegiance to the Lord. It is personal. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 in front of you. You see in verses 5 through 8, you see the names of people, Kephas, James, the 12. Uh, Jesus is personally saving people. You see their names. This is personal. He, he saves them. He opens their eyes to see Him. He changes them. The Apostle Paul in the 15th chapter talks about how his life was changed and talks about his past. I'm the least among the apostles because of what I've done. His, his life has changed. The gospel isn't just propositions about what God has done. The gospel is a personal invitation to step into the good news and become a part of this story. Speaking of lives being changed, the Corinthians were too. Turn, turn to the beginning of the letter. You're in chapter 15. Turn to the beginning of, 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 the, of this letter to the Corinthian church. Chapter 1, chapter 2. Draw your eyes at chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2. Paul, Paul talks about how he came and brought the gospel to them. When I came to you, 1 Corinthians 2, 1... ...Brethren, I didn't come to you with superiority of speech... ...or with wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you... ...except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling... ...and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom... ...but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power... So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The gospel changed their lives. He speaks of the power of God changing their lives. This personal call of taking these propositions and, and changing their lives with this. And, and them surrendering to him and being saved by him. And Paul says, that happened through the euangelion. I didn't come to you... With, with superiority of speech, I didn't come to you talking about anything else. You know, many people would say, church consultants would say to a small church like ours, Pastor Matt, if you want to get that church popping, if you want to get it to grow, you've got you to gotta knock off all this hell and long sermons talking about Jesus and triune God. It just gets boring. You've got to have a couple funny stories. You know, that, that sushi joke, that was good. Uh, you know, the ooh thing, that was, you know that was pretty funny. More funny stuff, tone down this gospel stuff. You know, or, or just play into the culture war. You know, get up on Sunday and start talking about that, uh, that documentary about COVID in the church. You know, that'll, that'll get people riled up. Or talk about Barbie. Just go off on that Barbie movie or whatever. Uh, you know, talk about this or that, you know, and just get people riled up. And then people will come and you'll have Christians coming from everywhere to come and hear about COVID and Barbie and all this and that. You grow the church. Tell some jokes. Sprinkle a couple Bible verses. Keep it light. Don't do any of that because people don't want to hear that. Paul says, over my dead body. You know why? Because the evangelion is what changes us and transforms us. And you know what? I know that the consultants, the, ch- the, the church growth experts and the rest, they're going to say that this is foolishness. I know that. Draw your eyes at chapter 1, verse 18. What does Paul say? For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the the world through its own wisdom did not come to know God, but God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, the Jews, they ask for signs, and the Greeks, they ask for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jewish people, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, it is very clear that Paul believed the gospel was what the church was supposed to be heralding When the church gathers for worship, like we are this morning, and when the church scatters for for mission, which we will do this afternoon. The church gathers to hear the gospel, rehearse the gospel, see the gospel pictured among us, and then we scatter out with that gospel. Now speaking of the church gathering, Paul wants the saints not only to preach the gospel, but to picture it. So we move from the primer about the gospel, if you flip your outline over, now to the pictures. In the New Testament, we read about these gospel pictures. I shared with you that I had in mind specifically baptism and communion. They are rituals of the church that we exercise to picture salvation, which leads you to point A under the picture, salvation. These pictures are not something that we do to earn or merit salvation. They don't merit. They mirror. They're pictures. Baptism and communion are pictures of what Jesus has done for his people. He washes them, baptism. He feeds them, communion. We refer to these pictures as ordinances. In some traditions of the Protestant church, they will even call them sacraments. How are we to understand them? In our catechism, it explains. What are the sacraments or ordinances? They are given by God and instituted by Christ, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper, a.k.a. communion. They are visible signs and seals that we are bound together as a community of faith by His death and resurrection. By our use of them, the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us. Now, here, the Catechism speaks of sign and seal. Follow me. What is a sign? Think about a railroad sign. You see a railroad sign when you're you're driving and railroad tracks. There's one over off of Florence or whatever. Uh, and, And it points you to the sign of the railroad, points you to the reality of the railroad. But the sign itself is not the railroad. It's merely a sign reminding us there is a railroad. A sign is outward, and it can be seen by all. The seal is inward, and it can't be seen by all. It's an inward thing. And it's an encouragement to the one in whom the seal has been given. It's an encouragement. It's an assurance that the Holy Spirit has brought to them what the sign shows. The, the, the point of a seal, the language of sealing, is other language that we use when we talk about the ordinances of baptism and communion. What do seals do? Seals guarantee something. Seals provide assurance. In the days before modern envelopes, you know, you lick them uh, or you get the peel off ones or whatever. In the days before our modern envelopes, paper was simply folded and wax was dribbled on the edge. And you would take a seal and press it down on that wax to contain everything. Typically, the, the wax was pressed flat and impressed with the sender's mark. The closure itself was like glue, a form of security, so that that which was sealed was secure. And the mark is respected, the mark of a seal, like the mark of a king, his signet on that seal. None dare tamper with the king's seal and break it without authorization. So too, these pictures remind us that we are sealed in him, that none that the Father has given to the Son will be lost. They're pictures that we have assurance in Christ. We have a saying today that if you have an agreement with someone and it's good to go, we say that it's what? Signed and sealed. Right? You mean that it is absolutely definite because everyone involved has signed all the legal documents. And speaking of legal in the New Testament, our language is, is, uh, in the New Testament of salvation involves metaphors of jurisprudence. Legal. It's justified in the courtroom of God. Sealed. This is getting at, B on your outline, salvation, and symbols. The symbols are reminding us of what Jesus has done. They're, they're pictures of this. Turn from 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul references some examples of Israel's history in the 10th chapter of of Corinthians to address some shenanigans that were going on in the church of Corinth. There was a lot of division and shenanigans going on. And so he speaks with reference to the Hebrew Bible about certain things in the life of Israel. And he references the exodus of the Jewish people and their slavery in Egypt. And he talks with them about baptism as he does this draw your eyes at verse 1 of chapter 10 I do not want you to be unaware brethren that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ the fathers under the cloud That's a reference to the divine presence of God, the fiery cloud that was leading Israel out of slavery in the wilderness, the underground railroad of Yahweh. They passed miraculously through the Red Sea and escaped the Egyptian army in Exodus 14. Paul says that they were, the ancient Jews, baptized into Moses, metaphorically. So you see, just as Christian salvation is symbolized by being baptized into Christ, our abolitionist and figurehead, Metaphorically, Israel's salvation from Egypt was symbolized through its figurehead, Moses. As Moses led Israel in the desert, God provided the people with food, manah, quail, in Exodus 16. Miraculously, God gave them water in Exodus 17 from a rock in Rephidim and Kadesh. The rock is a picture of Christ, Paul says. Rock is a common name for God and description of God in the Hebrew Bible. God is our rock, and so it's a fitting picture. Further, it ultimately was not the rock, but it was God who was providing for the people, manumitting them from slavery, protecting them along the way. In the next chapter, Paul talks about spiritual drink and spiritual food. Turn from chapter 10 into chapter 11, quickly. Verse 23 of chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we see in chapter 10, language of baptism, spiritual food. Chapter 11, we see the language of communion or the Lord's supper. Look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11. He calls it the Lord's Supper there. There are other names for communion Lord's Supper. The name Eucharist, which is derived from a Greek word, Eucharistos, means to give thanks. Uh, People refer to it sometimes as the Mass from the Latin ending of the Roman Rite, Missa Est, go you are dismissed. The table of the Lord, the Mass, the Eucharist, communion, all the same thing. What is the same thing? When Jesus, before He's going to go to His death, He gathers His disciples together coinciding with the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. And he gets them together while they have these elements on the table from Passover and and bread. Uh, And he says, these are pictures of me. This is my body. This is broken for you. There's a new deliverance, a new abolition, a new underground railroad. And I'm not rescuing people from slavery to Egypt. I'm rescuing them from slavery to sin. It's a metaphor. This, this is my body. Passover. I'm the new Passover. Look at verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Eucharist, communion, Lord's Supper, it's a picture of what He has done and it stirs an anticipation of hope that He's coming again. So then baptism and communion are pictures that we enjoy in this age, this epoch, as we await the return of our King. And so we have these pictures of him now. And then one day he's gonna come and we won't need those pictures anymore. When I'm traveling and I'm away from my family, I load up my phone with pictures and whatnot, and I just love looking at pictures of my family. Right? But if I got home, my wife recently was gone for like two weeks, so happy she's home, right? And I'm I'm looking at pictures of her, like, oh, I miss her, and she's texting me pictures, oh Yosemite, whatever track, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, and I look at the picture. Oh, that's my wife. Now, when my wife finally gets home after being gone for two weeks, you know, honey, I'm home. I go, hang on. I'm looking at this picture of you. You go, no, like put down the phone. She's here. Yay. Hugs. You're home. These pictures of baptism and communion serve as an intermediary in this time as we're waiting for him to come. And one day we will put them down. ...because we will see him face to face. We won't need a picture. He'll be right there. Paul says, as you take this, remember that he's coming again. So the significance, then, of the bread and the wine... ...it's deliverance in Jesus' body and blood. It's for, as Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28... ...for the forgiveness of sins. It pictures back to the Passover of Israel. In summary, then, as you have on your outline... ...communion is a holy ritual meal... ...reenacting the historic Jewish Passover... This event reapplied in the innocent life and vicarious atoning death of Jesus, who saved his people and joined them by the Spirit to his church, the family of God, who now feasts at his Father's table in thanks for God's grace in welcoming sinners to his family. Every family has a table. Every family has a table. Every family has a place that they gather and they, they share a meal. And the meal is for the family, and that meal is special. And, and it's, it's special to be invited to that table. Uh, thinking of my wife a moment ago, uh, you know, years years back when she was just a, a, you know, a person at church who I thought was cute and wanted to get to know her. You know, the first time you're invited over to the house and you meet the family, that's a that's a special thing. Not everyone gets to do that. Not everyone knows where I live. Not everyone's invited into the house. The house is a special place, and Jesus welcomes sinners at that place. Jesus has Judas at the table as he's serving this great feast and he's using the elements of that feast to teach, this is my body, this is my blood. Remember the bread. Remember, remember the lamb and the Passover whose blood was shed. This is, this is all, these were all foreshadows of what I've come to do. The same with baptism and water. We move from bread and wine to baptism and water. The word baptizo is a word that means to be immersed. They would immerse people in water. And so hence we read in the Bible like Mark chapter 1 verse 10, it has this language of immediately coming up out of the water. You would be placed under the water and you come back up out of the water. You've been immersed, you've been fully cleansed. When Christ washes a sinner, when the Spirit grabs a hold of a sinner and regenerates him and you're cleansed from inside, right, that's something that's inside, you can't see that baptism is an outward symbol of an inward reality. He's cleansed me, so I'm going to get washed in water in front of people so that they can see with their eyes what has happened with me and my spirit and my soul. The early Christians of the church, when they heard the gospel, they would have been baptized immediately. Look up here in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. We see that as they heard the message of the gospel, verse 40... As they're being exhorted to be saved and they come to Christ, verse 41, those who received the word were baptized. Immediately they heard the gospel, they were baptized. Acts chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Philip preaches the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And then what happens? They immediately, they want to get baptized. There are other examples I could show you, but I surface this for you to see that we have a contemporary problem in the church today and that there are many people who believe in Jesus and have for some period of time and they've yet to be baptized. This symbol is meant to go with you coming to faith. So again, I'm talking about this because next Sunday we're doing baptism. So if you're a believer here today and you haven't been baptized, here's the invitation. Come get in the waters. And as you show us this in this picture, we as a church, we get to rejoice because we're seeing a picture of something that has happened inside of you. We read in the scripture that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. We get to come and worship and rejoice as we see a picture of what God has done to you. This is a picture of what God has done. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, when John was in the River Jordan baptizing, we see that he baptized them as they confessed their sins. Those who come, those who confess their sins, those who are believers then enter into the waters. Baptism always follows confession, which is why we don't baptize babies, for example. Some traditions of the church do, but we biblically maintain there's supposed to be confession there. Some will push back and say, but in the book of Acts, whole households were baptized, right? Isn't there a couple of examples of that? Yes, there are examples, but that's an argument from silence because in none of those texts does it indicate that there were children, let alone infants, in their, in their homes. Uh, if you look around the room here today, there are many homes that don't have children in them. If you say the whole household is baptized, that doesn't mean that there's babies in there. That's an argument from silence. You're putting words in the mouth of the Scripture. While we're talking about people who misuse the book of Acts, there are other groups who will quote uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where Peter says, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And they'll say, no, 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 no! it's not a symbol. If you're not baptized, you don't have the forgiveness of sins. It says, it says, Acts two thirty-eight uh, that you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, This, like the household thing, is a misreading of the text. In this case, it isn't pushing a word into the text. Oh, see, there were babies in the house. In this case, it's taking a word in the text and shifting its meaning. Specifically, the preposition for, the Greek word ace. Uh, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, The cults who want to teach this assume the word for means in order to get. Repent... And be baptized in order to get the forgiveness of sins is their claim, but this is a misreading of the word ace. Let me show you very simply in English. If uh, Elijah's in the front row, one of my sons here with the sweet red fro, uh, if he said, uh, you know, Dad, I I have a headache. And then I said to Elijah, Elijah, take this Advil for your headache. Oh no, Dad, I don't want to get a headache. I already have a headache. Exactly, son. That's how the preposition for operates. Take this for your headache. Uh, That is to say, because you have a headache, take this Advil. The point of Acts 2.38 is, because you have the forgiveness of sins, be baptized. As you have on your outline, baptism is a symbolic act of ceremonial washing from sin and covenantal welcoming by God's grace through the regenerative cleansing work of the Holy Spirit, bringing us into the church of Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate who was sent to the Father which is all pictured in a believing, repentant sinner being immersed in water in the presence of Christ and his people as an outward sign of salvation, not a means of grace, you're not doing it to get saved, is performed as an act of thankful worship. It is worth noting that in 1 Corinthians, the people were making a mess of baptism and communion. In the opening chapters, there's not time. He has to deal with some shenanigans around baptism with Apollos and Paul and division and stuff. They were, they were taking this wonderful picture of the gospel and they were, and they were messing it up. And so Paul's very passionate to, to help teach them. In chapter 11, which is hopefully still in front of you, he talks about judgment on them for messing with the, with the communion table. Again, there's not time to get into it, but all of this to say, in terms of a gospel primer and pictures this morning, what I've labored to do is to take you into Corinthians, So you see the gospel, you see Paul preaching it in 1 Corinthians 15. Unpacked 1 Corinthians 15, gave you ten kind of simple, uh, you know, bare bones, kind of a skeleton of the gospel. And then we looked at these pictures that are given to the church as we await to see him face to face. And in the meantime, pictures are great. Pictures are great. It's like God is, is personally sending us text messages with pictures in them when we take communion. And as we see our brothers and sisters having communion, being baptized, it, it stirs in us through these outward symbols and seals of what God has done. To land the plane in conclusion, practically speaking, what do we do with this? Well, first of all, have you been baptized as a believer in Christ? If you're a believer here today and you haven't been baptized, I would strongly encourage you, indeed call you, get baptized next Sunday. Do are doing baptisms, get baptized. It it's it's like uh it's like a married person not wearing their ring in in our culture. You kinda of go, hey, why don't you wear your ring? Like the ring doesn't make me married, it symbolizes that I am married, and if I wasn't wearing it, you go, is everything okay? You know, what's what's going on here? And so I'd ask, you know, is everything okay? You believe in him. He's giving you this wonderful picture. You saw examples in, in Acts, they didn't like space it out and wait five years or whatever. You know Be baptized. Come to the waters. This beautiful picture. If God's sending you pictures, right, and you're like, "Mm, I'll look at them later. No, no, no. Now, like, these are beautiful pictures for us. More importantly than being baptized, a second point of conclusion before the final one, have you received Christ for the forgiveness of sins? If I could go back to point number 10. Again, here's the personal invitation. I'm not just popping out propositions. Dear friend, I'm inviting you into... The greatest thing that has ever happened in human history. The Son of God became a man and died to rescue His people from bondage to sin and to save them from death and punishment in the afterlife. Have you come to Him? Confess your sins. Come to Him. Turn to Him. Come to Him today. And we'll we'll get baptized next week. Come to Him today. This is an invitation for you to have a right relationship with God. Of all the relationships in the creation to get right, this is the one to get right. And it is with none other than the creator himself. You know, when you find a good thing, you proclaim it. If I find a new restaurant or whatever, I I start talking about it. You know, I'm like, hey, or a new movie. Hey, you got to see this. You know, when you find something good, you, you can't help but to talk about this. And this brings me to the final point on your outline. Are you sharing this good news with others? Or are you just coming to church hearing the pastor talk about it and then you go on about your week or whatever and you don't share with others? In the beginning of our worship service, one of the scriptures that we read was Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12, it spells out the job of pastors, namely that the job of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the harvest. Uh, As we've said here before, that the church and our gathering on Sundays is kind of like a training center. You come, you're given resources. You, you know, you're being trained to do something. Your pastors labor all week uh, praying and putting together resources for you to equip you to this end. If we just come on Sundays and we just hear the gospel and we just keep it to ourselves and we never share it, we, we are missing what this is all about. If, if you were a firefighter and you're sitting in your firefighter truck right in front of an apartment complex that is burning on fire, and you're sitting in the truck with the, I don't know, the Delray Church app, because you love it, and you, um, you're just listening to sermons, you're like, oh, this sermon's good, or whatever, oh, this one's really long, oh my gosh, whatever, it's, I'll listen to it, two speed, right? And you're sitting in your firefighter truck just listening to sermons, while people are dying in flames, what would we call that? It's a dereliction of duty. Jesus didn't save us to listen to sermons. And I'm not preaching sermons for people to to click like on them or whatever. I'm preaching the Word of God that we would be changed by the Word of God so that we would be faithful ambassadors while we await the return of the King. So that when we scatter, we proclaim. And when we gather, we praise. And you can't wait to come to the table and picture what you have heard that is before us. Many of you have jobs. You have wonderful jobs that God has blessed you with. You go to work Five, six days a week. It is a mission field. You're surrounded by people that don't know him. There's countless people around you all week who don't know him. Some of you are stay-at-home parents. Your kids go to school. You have a mission field when you go to PTA. Your kids play sports. You go to sports. you got all these parents around you. My kids, when they're in sports, you're there all the time. You're there all the time, dropping them off, hanging out with parents, talking to parents. There's gospel conversations every single day for us to have with people who are not in Christ. And and we're in a culture where there's churches everywhere to boot with the ultimate mission of going to the unreached. But think about the mission field that God has placed in front of us and the opportunity that you have through your vocation, through your work. It's an amazing thing. You get paid to go to a place that's filled with people who aren't believers. You say, well, I work at a Christian school. <laughs> you know, not everyone in the school is a Christian. You know that, right? Just as, not everyone who's listening to this sermon is saved. Another reason why we preach the gospel, every day there's an opportunity to share with someone who's yet to hear of him. Every week there's an opportunity to share with someone who's yet to hear of him. There's hardly a day that passes where I'm not in one-on-one conversations with people about these things. And, and you have that same opportunity. And many of you, one of the exciting things of being a pastor in this church, are doing just that. I love getting messages from you. Saying, I'm sharing the gospel with my Mormon friend, my Muslim friend, my atheist friend, my Jehovah Witness friend. And they said this, how should I respond? That brings such joy to a pastor. Because again, the job of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the harvest. And so as you're out there and you go, well, I don't know what to say or I don't know how to, or I don't, you know, just say something. And then when you get stumped, come and ask for help. Uh, start, say, just ask them, are you a Christian? That gets the ball rolling real fast. What do you think about Jesus? Uh, you know, hey, have you ever done something you regret? You, you get the ball going. Just start having a conversation. I'll close with an illustration and then we'll come and sing and come to the Lord's table. Dio Moody, the... Noted preacher in the 1800s, founder of the Moody Bible Institute and seminary, D.L. Moody once made a vow to never let a day go without witnessing to at least one person. It was a late, cold, and rainy winter night, past 10 o'clock. He wasn't feeling too well. Uh, He was down, and he realized he hadn't witnessed to anyone that day. So he went out in the cold, rainy night. He found a man who was under a lamppost. He asked the man, are you a Christian? The man flew into a violent rage, uh, went off on him, and Moody went back to bed and said, well, I fulfilled my quota for the day. It didn't go too well. Turns out the man came down and actually complained to the people at, 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 at Moody's church. You know, this guy running around offending people in the middle of the night with this, you know, gospel stuff. But Moody kept on doing what he was doing. 3 months later passed when that man came to Moody's home late one night knocked on the door Moody opened the door remembers the guy who went off on him who had been going around complaining of the church and whatnot he opened the door and the guy apologized to him for the way that he treated Moody and then Moody asked him about the state of his soul the man was saved that night because Moody Didn't care whether or not, as we saw with Paul, look, the message across is foolishness to those who were perishing. It's not my job to save him, it's just my job to share about the Savior. Yeah, people are going to get angry, they're going to bite your head off, but you don't know what the Spirit of God is going to do. Three months later, he comes back, knocks on his door, he comes to Jesus. This guy became very active in Moody's church. His whole life was changed. The vast majority of believers, I think, in North America today, and I know some of this anecdotally, unfortunately, have never led one person to faith in Christ. And it's easy to rail at the culture and go look at what's happening in America and look at what's happening, to, look at that pride month, look at this, this, and that, that. Say look, our, we got a really simple task brothers and sisters. Go talk to people about Jesus. Invite them to come to church where he's pictured. And let's now celebrate him in the picture of communion and sing praise to him. And let's gather next Lord's Day and watch the wonderful picture of baptism. And may we never grow tired of these pictures or of these propositions. And may we never, never let a day, let a week pass without sharing this with people personally inviting them to come. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this gospel primer. Thank you for the personal invitation to come to you. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the propositions we have discussed We thank You for the reality of the relationship that You have brought by the Spirit through Your Son that we can be reconciled to You, our Father. We thank You for the table that You have prepared before us, a table for family, that in the Son we have become sons and daughters of You, O Father. So as we come to the table here and we picture the work of Your Son, I pray that Your Spirit would move, that these signs and seals would affirm us afresh, of the guarantee and the assurance that we have in You, our Father. The assurance that we have in You, our Savior, Lord Jesus. Your signet ring has been pressed into the wax and none can open, the message of the King. It is from You. We are assured in You and held in You. We don't have to do anything to merit salvation. You have provided it all complete and full. And the the, the table is big enough for any to come. I pray that we would see uh, people coming even this morning in salvation to you and coming to the table and celebrating what you have done. Receive these songs of worship. Receive our offerings this day, we pray. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus.